Welcome to another edition of the Hangout Podcast. This is your host, Juan Hernandez. Thank you guys for tuning into the show today. Uh, I know it's been a few weeks since I uh, put out some new episodes with with uh, with guests. Uh, today is a very special guest. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. I know it's been a few years in the making. Uh, finally have the chance to be able to sit down and actually chat through Skype. So, uh, without further ado, uh, introduce yourself. Yeah. Uh-oh. I think it kind of... Related? Went out. Okay, here we go. And Sorry, we, we had a I had a poor connection right now. <laughs> Sorry about that. Think these, okay. These kind of things happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. Okay, this is Victor Martinez, and... Your dad and I are cousins, uh, and I've watched you grow up as, as a little kid, uh, and you're a fine young man, and I'm kind of honored to be here on your podcast uh, to talk about, you know, lots of different stuff. Uh, I know you have a lot of questions for me. Uh, basically, I'm, a, I'm a, a teacher and a musician, and I've done a whole lot of different things in my life, and I'm involved in a lot of different things, and uh, but music has always been a, a strong influence in my life. Uh, playing drums and playing a little bit of keyboards and playing with different groups and things like that. So, uh, by all means, just ask me any kind of questions or my, or my thoughts on anything, and uh, and I'll be glad to let you know. Isn't it? Isn't it so? It's just so strange how things end up working out. I mean, of course, the intro that you just gave, it's, it pretty much sums everything up. You know, you've known me my whole life. And, of course, you know, with being cousins with my dad, it's that's a long history right there. You're talking years of history. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, sure enough, the connection the connection is there with uh, with music. Nonetheless, you know, my my dad's for the long he's he's been a huge fan of music. I'm sure he's gone to so many, a few a few shows with you that he you know he talks about every now and then, uh, back in the from the good old days as they say. <laughs> I just uh, so happen to have missed out on all that stuff, Victor. <laughs> well, you you have your, you, I've seen that you've been to a lot of music shows and done a lot of things on your own, which is really cool, you know different uh different times uh, different eras uh but still you know the it's the connection is there it all comes full circle at the end of the day the uh kind of kind of want to jump into sort of like your like a a, a brief uh overview of your upgrade upbringing i know uh most of uh the family over there grew up in baytown um went to school out there in Baytown. Kind of kind of just kind of go over like a a brief uh, synopsis of your upbringing growing up. Sure, yeah. Uh I'm the youngest of uh five kids. Uh the oldest being Helly and then after that Perferio who is now deceased and uh then my sister Alma's in the middle and then my brother Hector is just older than me and I'm I'm the baby of the family. Um, and we all grew up in Old Baytown. My dad was a merchant seaman, 
most of his life. So he shipped out a lot, and he was gone for two, three, four months at a time when he would sail the, the sail on the ships to different places all over the world uh, with different, uh, you know, uh, commercial shipping companies. Uh, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, I mean, somebody needed to stay home and raise the kids, and uh, mom did that and uh, cooked and did everything. Uh, and mom also was very much a, a very accomplished seamstress. Uh, mom sewed a million dresses for all of the local ladies in the neighborhood. Um, that was one thing that she was well known for. Uh, you know, that she sewed a lot of dresses, and I can remember her working at all hours of the day and night uh, sewing dresses and things for people. So that was that was really cool, and I, I grew up uh, in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Uh, there were cousins that lived down the street and cousins that lived the next street over and cousins that lived the next street over and the next street over. So uh, one of the cool things about growing up in Old Baytown was that I was around a lot of family, a lot of cousins, and we'd all roam the streets and the alleyways playing, uh, whether it was rag ball or water balloon wars or whatever kids get into, you know, uh, and everybody knew each other. Uh, even if they weren't related, people still knew each other. My parents uh, and my aunts and uncles, they knew everybody in the neighborhood. It was, it was a different time. Uh, for us back then, uh, not like it is now. And looking back, I really do value that uh, because uh, it's. I, I don't know that you can see that you see that now anymore, uh, where people grow up in the same place and everybody knows one another, uh, things like that. Uh, but anyway, I went to, to school at San Jacinto Elementary and then. Uh, I went to Burnett for one year when we moved, um, then went to Baytown Junior High for, for, for that, and then went to Robert E. Lee High School. Uh, and high school was really kind of uh, something that I, although I didn't enjoy school, the one thing that I really did really love about high school was that I, I was in the Lee Band, which was called the, the Famous Lee Band because we had such a really good band that was nationally recognized. Uh, and I had some really awesome musical experiences uh, in the Lee Band because we got to do things that some other bands, high school bands in the country didn't get to do. Our uh, band director was a good friend of Doc Severinsen. And uh, every year, uh, Doc Severinsen would come to Baytown and would play a concert with us. And uh, we might have somebody, uh, some kind of composer, uh, compose a, a range of pieces, especially for the band and Doc. Uh, and there were other people that came from different parts of the country to join us as well. People like uh, uh, Carmen Dragon, who was, who was a, a very accomplished composer uh, that lived in California and did a lot of uh, like the theme songs for for different kinds of shows, like I think Mission Impossible was one of them. Uh, he came and did a concert with us, and he was uh, the father of a of a of a famous uh, singing duo, uh, 
Daryl Dragon, which everybody knows as the captain from Captain and Tennille. Of course, I'm not sure how much your audience is aware of that because that's that's kind of dating me. I'm going, <laughs> I'm going, I'm going real far back in time. So uh, it just depends on the age of your audience, uh, as to you know. What what how, time frame uh, are we talking about here? What what uh, as far as uh, when when you were being in high school in that ba- in in band? Are we talking 1970s? Uh, I was in high school from 73 to 77. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I wasn't too far off. <laughs> 73, And that would you say that was your kind of like your segue into into music, or was that from a much earlier age? It was actually from a much earlier age, but I didn't really, uh, I didn't really concentrate and focus a lot of time on it until that time. I mean, uh, I mean, I grew up in in the. As a kid, I grew up watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan's show, you know. So, I mean, uh, when when I saw them, you know, when I heard their music, because there was a lot of music that was happening at that time, uh, a lot of good groups that, you know, um, are, you know, that really have a legacy, you know, the Beatles and just everybody else, you know. You had the Supremes and you had just so many different groups. But... Uh, High school was the time when I really uh, got into playing, uh, becoming a better musician. I just kind of played at it during junior high. I wasn't really very good, but uh, I would say probably in the 10th grade is when I really started to say, hey, I like this. I really want to do this more, you know, and so uh, I, I focused a lot more attention on it, you know. So. So that's more uh, more on the performance side of, of things. How how far back can you remember actually? Because when I when I think about when I started listening to music, I, I remember as far back as well. You know, me being younger, of course, I remember the uh, the nineties when you know when grunge was happening, Nirvana, uh, Stone Temple Pilots, all those bands. Yeah, I remember riding around in the car with my dad and he'd have a rock 101 klol going on and they would be playing all those bands how far back do you remember um listening to uh, to those bands from the 70s even as far back as maybe like the 60s well you know uh like i said i remember watching the beatles on okay. the ed sullivan show back in i want to say it was the the February of, of 64, you know, uh, and I was just very, very young. I was maybe five years old or something like that. I was very young. And uh, an, an interesting story that your uh, listeners might uh, find interesting is that, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, you know, we, we just didn't have a lot of money uh, in those days. And so we couldn't we couldn't really afford nice things like a really nice record player or color TV or things like that. And, and even so a lot of that technology was still very much in its very early stages. And, uh, I remember asking my dad for, for, uh, for, uh, you know, 
a, a tape player, a, rec, a, a, a recorder. Uh, and back then, the recorders were very different. You know, they had these big reels on them, uh, and they were big and bulky items. And uh, I, I asked my dad to get me one, uh, and he said, okay, okay, I'll get you one. And I remember he had gone on a trip to, I think it was Japan, uh, and we went to pick him up somewhere in the middle of the night. I don't even remember where we went to pick him up because whenever he'd come home from from trips uh, across the ocean, uh, he might end up at the Shell docks or he might end up in Louisiana or he might end up in Galveston at the port over there. And he would just call and say, hey, I'm off the ship. Can you come pick me up? And it might be the afternoon, it might be the middle of the night, but I remember that we went to pick him up, and he had a box, and in the box was this tape recorder that he had bought for me from Japan, I believe, and man, that was like my prized possession, you know, uh, and it had a radio in it, it had like an AM, FM radio, I think, and it, and it was a recorder, and uh, I remember... Uh, when I was a kid, the Beatles actually, there was actually a Beatles cartoon, you know. Uh, I don't remember much about the cartoon, but it was just, you know, probably like any cartoon. But during the, during the cartoon, at some point, they would play one of the songs, you know. Uh, and I would take that recorder and I'd put it in front of the television. Wow. And I would, I would turn it on and I would record it, you know. But I also remember... Uh, and I don't remember the, the time frame. It was about the same time frame that I really wanted a record player real bad. Uh, and we couldn't really afford one. But one day my dad brought home this record player. And back then, the record players were as big as a washing machine. You know, um, it wasn't like today's technology. But he had found one, or he said that he had found one that somebody was throwing away because it was broken. It had something wrong with it. And so he, he went to Radio Shack or somewhere, and he found a capacitor for it. And that's all that it needed was the capacitor had burned up, and he sewed the capacitor on it. And uh, uh, it started, it, it worked, you know. And uh, I remember that. You know, before I was old enough to go to school, uh, there was a Sears and Roebuck here in Baytown, like right where Lee College is now, uh, the, where the Lee College Performing Arts Center is and nursing school is. Uh, that's where the Sears was. And you could go into Sears. Uh, I remember the, the aisle that you would walk in. When you walked in the, from the parking lot, you could walk a few steps, and on the left-hand side was where they had all the records, the albums and the 45s, and they had these packages of 45 RPM records where they would sell, like, I don't remember if it was 5 or 10, but there were there were 5 or 10 of them in, in, in a, like, a package that they would sell for. Oh, I don't know, maybe a buck fifty, maybe two dollars, and so you could buy a pack. And uh, they had the different bands, like they had the Beatles, and I remember buying the Beatles, and uh, I'd bring those home, and uh, 
I put the little insert in it when, because you had to have a little plastic insert to mount it on the spindle. And man, I would play the same record over and over again 50 times, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, so that was really that was really cool because, you know, otherwise I might not be able to have a record player, you know, as a young kid. But uh, I, I was able to get those, you know, because my dad got those for us, you know, uh, even though it was secondhand, you know, that was really, really cool. And, you know, one of the stories that my mom tells, if, if you ever get the chance, you can ask her about this. There were times when when mom would have to get up in the middle of the night to go pick dad up somewhere, or when she would just be making trips to the store or something like that, and it was just me and her. And she would she would put the radio on, and I would be in the back seat. And she says that she remembers, and I kind of vaguely remember. She says that I would just stand up on the, I would just stand up in the back, you know, like where the seats are, and I would sing and sing and sing and sing and sing. And she she, she reminded me of that. You know, I didn't I didn't quite remember that, but she's she's told me about that several times and. As she tells me, I do remember that. So, uh, yeah, the music, you know, was always a big part of life. You know, uh, it, it was just there was so much good music that was coming out, you know, when we were kids. And, and it was so different than what it is now. You know, you had bands that, you know, these guys, they lived together in a car sometimes or in a van. And, and just played music and that's all they did and they put out some really really good stuff you know that's why a lot of that music has really stood the test of time because it was really it was really well crafted you know and there was a lot of changes going on you know in our in our culture and in society you know there was there was there was tumultuous times you know the 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 60s were you know, that was a really big time as far as uh, our culture, uh, the youth culture, you know, with the coming of age of, you know, the, the hippie generation, uh, the anti-war movement and, and the protest songs and all that stuff that went along with those times, you know, the, the assassinations and all the political upheaval, you know, and the music, a lot of the music reflected that, you know, uh, but there was other music that reflected other things, the happier things and stuff like that. But, you know, those are some, some memories that, you know, they're, uh, you know, you'll always treasure those kinds of moments, uh, those memories of, you know, when you were growing up and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I remember, you know, sometimes we used to go to, uh, down to Galveston uh, Mom and Dad would take us down to Galveston, take the whole family, and you know our cousins would go down there too, and we we just have a great time. And you know, on the way back, they'd have the radio on, and you know you could you could listen to whatever was on. There was so much good music to to listen to. Uh, you know, and there was bands like the Beach Boys. You know, when when the Beach Boys songs came on, you know, was, you you felt like you were at the beach. You know, it was just. It was just really cool, but uh, those are things that I remember from my youth, you know.
I'm I'm just in in awe of all of all these stories. Uh, I wanted to go back before we leave the topic. Do you recall which uh, which Beatles? Well, I was going to ask first if you actually remembered the first album you bought, but which uh, actual Beatles album you had or albums? Well, I had several of them. I had two or three of them. I had the one. Uh, I forget which what it's called, but it's the one where the, 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 their faces are on the front cover, and it's really kind of a dark cover, and three of them are in a line, and then one of them is down below them. Uh, I, I forget which one it was. It was like their, I don't know, second or third. And then I had another one. Uh, it might have been A Hard Day's Night. I had that, and... I, I also distinctly remember, I want to say it was for my eighth birthday, I asked my mother to buy me Rubber Soul. Uh, and nice. I remember we went to Kmart. There was a Kmart here in town. Uh, and I remember buying it at Kmart, but it, I, I really wanted Rubber Soul. And, and I also remember uh, when the movie Help came out, uh, before it came out, they had announced that, that, that they were making a movie. Um, and I remember when it came out and, and it was playing at the Brunson Theater. And I had, I had asked Mom, I don't know, months ahead of time, when, when it comes out, take me to see it. And, and I remember that she took me to see it, you know. And, you know, looking back on it, if you, if you watch the movie, it's, you know, it's really a very goofy movie. But, you know, in that day, it was like a big deal. But still, even even though the the uh, the movie itself is kind of a goofy movie, the the music, man, it just still uh, for me, it just it, it stirs a lot of passion. You know, uh, all the different songs, uh, you know, there's so many other songs that I just really love, you know, and, and mainly I think most of the stuff that I really love is a lot of their early stuff, uh, you know, um, and the, the rock and roll stuff, but their ballads, they had s such beautiful ballads, you know, um, but they, those ballads, uh, you know, it, it all brings back a lot of memories, you know, of, of youth, you know, um, which is, you know, which is something that music does for many people. You know, you, you, you can, you can close your eyes when you listen to a band from your youth and, and you're just, you're transported back in time, you know, uh, and that's what I tell a lot of my fellow musicians is, is that if you really want to be successful, I think that as a musician, when you, when you're playing music, if you can transport somebody back in time into, into the, the happier times of their youth, uh, you know, when there was a lot of new things that they were experiencing in life, you know, you, you can be very successful, you know, because uh, a lot of the, the memories of our youth is what really moves us when, when, when we recall them, you know. Uh, and as you get older, you'll... I think you'll understand that. It, I, sometimes I think it, you have to you have to look at it from hindsight, you know. 
but uh, yeah, I yeah, I had several albums and I had several a, a number of uh, singles, you know, that I bought from those packets. But uh, I, I want to say "Meet the Beatles" was one of them, uh, and then uh, "Hard Day's Night," and I had a few others, you know. Uh, had a few others, but but I remember getting Rubber Soul for my eighth birthday. Uh, that was a, that's a great album. Uh, but yeah, that's good stuff. And there was a lot of other good music too. You know, uh, I mean, I could almost sit there and name all of them. You know, well, maybe not name all of them, but. You know, when you hear them, you go, oh, yeah, and it brings back a certain memory, you know. You know, it's it's funny because uh, I don't think I've ever told this story before. Uh, the, the Beatles was actually the first band I was introduced to as far as music goes. And I actually got a, a burned copy of the, the one compilation album that came out in 2000. Yeah. And your brother Porfirio actually gave me that copy. I still have oh. it to this day. <laughs> so, cool. So that was my introduction to the Beatles. All those songs that are on there, and there's there's nights where I'll go into a, a Beatles rabbit hole, and I'll just start reading up on stuff about Lennon and McCartney and Ringo, George Harrison. It's just endless stuff that's there. Uh, how how just how hard they really worked at, at their craft and, you know, just getting that time performing on stage and then coming to the U.S. and having that big explosion in the 60s. And they, oddly enough, they didn't really last that long as a band. Yeah, they really didn't. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were, you know, a lot of people were upset when, when they when they broke up, but, you know, it's it's like you said, they had worked really, really hard, and that's why they were re really, really good, and they, were, they had this unique uh, combination or recipe, uh, songwriting, you know, skills, uh, and ability to collaborate, and, and they had the right people around them, you know, and uh, I would say that probably they're more difficult times... Uh, from my perspective, is when when Brian Epstein died, you know, because they were more or less kind of in the middle of a big hurricane, but they were in the eye of it, and they had all sorts of stuff going on around them, and they were, to, to a certain degree, I think, insulated from a lot of the stuff, because Brian Epstein and the other people around them just kind of kept them from all the other things but then once they had to get involved and and take care of business and things like that then the nature of their relationship changed and they were growing older too they were maturing and they were becoming you know their own persons you know uh and i think it was just inevitable that they were going to uh you know split up but you know even after they split up they all did their they all did wonderful things. I mean, look at McCartney and, and look at Lennon, what he did and Harrison and, and even Ringo, you know, they, they just kept on, they just kept on trucking, but in their own way, you know, 
uh, and I mean, they were geniuses, you know, I mean, you look at McCartney and, and I mean, even today he's, you know, he performs, you know, um, and all the great music that he did. And, you know, I've, I've recently watched a lot of things on, on John Lennon, the different live performances that he did, uh, you know, of some of his music. And, and it was really, really great stuff, you know. Uh, and I remember the stuff that George Harrison put out. Uh, I, You know, that, that song, My Sweet Lord, man, I, I just love that song. I can listen to that song anytime, you know. Uh, but he had a, he had a other good stuff too, you know. Uh, they were just creative people. They were just very creative people, and and they pursued that passion, and that was really, you know, they they left us a lot of great music, you know. The so you go back to we go back to being in band and all that. When when was it where where you said? Okay, I like uh, you know I like the drums or say I like the guitar or whatever. Uh, that pivotal point where you said I want to play the drums and was it a particular a particular band a particular drummer that you gravitated towards? Or was it a particular uh, show you well, concert you might have attended? Well, you know, as far as playing drums is concerned. You know, uh, I started playing drums in sixth grade in junior high, and one of the things that they did uh, is is that when we were in fifth grade, you know, they uh, a band director from the junior high came by the school and said, "Okay, we're going to be taking signups for people that want to be in the band and stuff like that," uh, and, and so, so you can sign up. I forget exactly how the process went. But uh, they uh, they said, uh, you know, you if you haven't taken music lessons before, then you can play trumpet or trombone or I forget which instruments they said. But uh, you um, if you want to play drums, then you have to have already taken piano lessons uh, or some kind of music lessons and stuff like that. And for some reason or the other, I just the other instruments didn't didn't appeal to me uh, and i really don't know why but it, you know when i signed up they asked me they said uh you know what do you want to play and i said well i want to play drums and so they said well do you have any previous music lessons or, or piano uh and i said well no i don't and they're like well you, then you you can't play drums and you'll have to play um, you know a trombone or or something else like that you know I, I, I don't know uh, and and I told them <laughs> and it's kind of it's a, it's a funny story now but I told them well if, if I can't play drums then I'm just not gonna be in band and they said okay you're gonna be a drummer <laughs> wow <laughs> and, and, and they let me in on drums you know just like and, that. I sucked. I wasn't any good. I mean, in, in junior high, you know, uh, you're just starting out and, uh, you know, if you've never been exposed to reading music and stuff like that, you know, it's it's like learning math or anything else. Uh, I wasn't that great, you know, 
uh, I was always like one of the last chairs, you know, because I didn't practice and things like that. Uh, so, but for some reason or the other, that was the choice that I might made. I said, I want to play drums or I'm not going to be in band. And they said, okay, you're, you're going to be, in, you're going to be a drummer. Uh, and so it really wasn't until high school that I really said, Hey, I like this. I want to get better. And I started dedicating time and effort to practicing and, and getting better, you know? And the- and and going into going into high school, you start running across bands that, that are popping up left and right that are just huge at the time. You have bands like Zeppelin, The Purple, Sabbath, Aerosmith, uh, the guys in Kiss, Rush, ACDC, Van Halen. Were you were you looking? Were you gravitating more towards a a specific genre? Were you also seeing what they were doing? too as far as uh when it came to playing drums well i mean like in in band you know we were playing classical kind of music you know we were playing um music from russian composers and different things like that we were playing more of your uh uh you know classical type stuff but as far as what i listened to uh man i was listening to you know Zeppelin, uh, Steve Miller, The Eagles, uh, uh, The Who. Uh, one of the big bands that I, that I really loved, especially later in high school, was was Yes. That was always a, a man. That was like one of my favorite bands. Uh, but I love everything else, you know. Uh, anything from, you know, uh, what's you know like Aerosmith and. Uh, all of the bands that were up and coming at that time that were well known, and then there were bands that were not well known, but maybe they had a they had a, a good song, you know, that, that really that really just grabbed you, you know, uh, and and so I liked all of that stuff. Anything that was on FM radio, you know, uh, the Doobie Brothers, you know, uh, just any of that stuff, the the, the Moody Blues. Uh, you know, any uh, Neil Young, the uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash, uh, ten years after uh, all of that stuff, because you know you would turn on the FM radio and you could hear all of that stuff. You know, all of their hits, and that was back in the days when they weren't confined to playing songs that were three minutes or, or four minutes. You know, you might hear. Uh, Peter Frampton's uh, "Do You Feel the Way We Like We Do," which is, I think it's, I don't remember if it's nine minutes long or thirteen minutes long, but back then the FM radio stations played the whole song, you know. So uh, that was really cool, which, which I don't think, I don't know that that they have much of that now. They probably do, but I just, you know, just don't really tune into that. But, but that was really cool. Uh, you know, there was so much music happening at that time with a lot of bands here and and in the UK as well. You know, lots of lots of good stuff happening. And you know, synthesizers were coming into uh, how shall I say uh, the technology was was changing the keyboards. I mean, you had bands that had traditional piano and organ, but then you had uh, synthesizers coming in. 
and being a, a lead and solo instrument like you had, you know, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and other bands like that that might have that in their music. Uh, so there was just so much good stuff. Uh, and I mean, I love, in, in band, we would play things like Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 5 in D minor, and I I loved that stuff. I, I'm, I love that stuff. I think that somebody, you know, you can encounter people that that listen to rock and roll maybe and when you talk about classical music they go well you know I, I, I don't really like classical music that much I listen to rock and roll and stuff like that and for me what I what I find that was a really big part of, of loving it so much is it's one thing for you to take a record of a classical piece and put it on your record player and listen to it in your speakers. But it's a totally different experience altogether. It's just a completely different experience when you are in a room with 60 or 70 different musicians playing that song and it's it's bouncing off the walls and rattling your bones, literally rattling your bones, you know, you're you you are the music at that time. You're not just listening to it. You are it. You're playing it, and you are it. And that's one of the things. I think that's probably one of the reasons that a lot of people maybe don't like classical music that much is that they can't relate to actually being in that room next to everybody else that's got an instrument and playing it. You know, and so that's one of the things that I appreciate about having been in band is that I got to play a lot of really awesome classical pieces uh, and be in the middle of it, you know. And an another thought that I've had about classical music, you know, that I could probably share with you is, you know, you have to, if you look back on when a lot of those pieces were written, whether it was Beethoven or Mozart or any of those pieces, okay? A lot of those guys, you know, they wrote parts out for the entire orchestra, for every instrument. And the other, the other part of it is that when they performed it, just imagine where they performed it. They performed it in concert halls that were lit by candle power or some kind of oil lantern. There were no speakers. There was no microphones. There was no electricity. You know, back in the 17, 1800s, you know, or the 1700s, when all this, when a lot of this great music was was written. You know, there was no amplification. Uh, there was no turning up the knob and, and uh, turning up the amplifier uh, to do all that stuff. And there was no synthesizers that you could, you know, press a, a key and it did all sorts of different things. Everything that they wrote had to, had, had to move their soul by virtue of how they arranged 
the song with all the instruments and everything and the way that they composed the piece, they had to really have an incredible imagination in order to make it something that people would really engage in, given that there was no electronics at that time, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and that's why so much of that music stands the test of time, because it was, it was, it was written in such a way that, you know, the, the person writing it had to really have his stuff together in terms of knowing what each instrument sounded like and was capable of and putting the whole thing together. You know, that's, that, that's, that's like an incredible feat. More amplifiers and uh, turn volume knobs up louder or add more speakers or just pump in more electricity, you know, and you can, you can play in a stadium. But back then, they couldn't do that. They had to, it was different. And so that's a good thing for a lot of people to ponder, I think, you know. And, and these guys, you know, looking back, I, I ended up taking a music course. It was a music history course in college. And we read up on a lot of, a lot of that stuff and kind of reviewed some of the famous works that, from, from that era. And to me, it's just so, it's just so, I look at it and I'm like, man, these guys were, not only were they writing this stuff, but they were performing it too. And, and like you, like you said, in, in a time where pretty much none of this was available, none of these resources were available. And now you have, you can just sit down and make music on your, as far down as your phone, your iPad, your pull up GarageBand on your computer and you're able to come up with a basic track. <laughs> Whereas, you know, these guys were, it's just some, they, they were just something else, just a whole different level of, uh, musicianship. So, I mean, you saw, yeah. you, you saw it, you saw it. And uh, as the years progressed, you know, the different eras change, you know, no different than what, a uh, Eddie Van Halen would, was doing on the guitar, you know, just, pretty much innovating what was going on then and then along comes randy rose and he reinvents the whole thing again so it's, it's just it's just to me it's just amazing that you have people like that that just come up with these really creative works that you know i would have never come up with that stuff <laughs> they were geniuses they were really they really were geniuses to be able to do that, uh, it's, uh, you know, you, your brain has to be, your brain has to be different to be able to do those kinds of things, <laughs> you know, right. uh, but, but they did that with regularity. I mean, you had composers that they didn't just compose one symphony, they composed 10 or 15 and then a bunch of other little songs and, uh, you know, different kinds of pieces for different uh, uh, ensembles for some for a, a full orchestra and some for a small you know string quartet and and even that requires such an incredible level of mental uh, acuity you know uh, uh, mental creativity uh, you have to be able to hear it in your head you know 
even if the musicians aren't there, you have to be able to hear it in your head and write it down because, you know, there's a lot of music uh, composers that did that kind of stuff. You know, they heard it in their head and they wrote it down and and then they put it in front of an orchestra and it sounded perfect once you, you know, once the orchestra played it, you know, they might not make any changes to it, you know, or, or they might make just small changes to it, you know. Uh, but that's, to me, that's a, that's an incredible feat, you know, that uh, a lot of people don't understand, you know. But uh, you're familiar with uh, with Michael Kamen and Hans Zimmer, right? Um, no, I don't. I don't think I am. Michael Kamen, he uh, he has since passed away. He died in 2003. Did a did a number of film scores and even worked with a, a lot of bands. Uh, I think he he worked with Pink Floyd on the wall, doing the orchestration and all that. Yeah. Um, what else did he work on? He ended up working, they had this trend in the late 90s, early 2000s, where these rock bands were trying to incorporate the symphony in their shows. Oh, yeah. And so... So you had you had bands like I believe Metallica was like one of the first to to have pulled it off and watching documentaries uh, from them and I believe the Scorpions even Kiss did it at some point. Um, I'm, I'm watching these documentaries and they're they're talking about how how difficult it it was at first, you know, getting together in a room with the with the orchestra and just starting to play the song and you know them trying to trying to keep time and of course you know there's there's miscommunication i mean it's just a difficult process for them to and you're talking about professional bands that have been playing for for a long time but when you mix that in with an orchestra you know, actually keeping time and having to go through all that it's just a whole different ball game so let me ask you have you ever heard the album by the moody blues called Days of the Future Past. Yes, as a matter of fact, I had a I have a friend. Let me let me get this right. Let me pull it up real quick. Cuz I think I think Days of the Future Past was like one of the first uh, albums made by a quote-unquote rock band where they incorporated uh, I want to say it's the London Symphony Orchestra right. uh, into their into their music, and the whole album is is them with the London Symphony Orchestra uh, with pieces that they arranged with them, and it's it's just an to me it's an incredibly awesome album. Uh, I've loved that ever since I first heard it, you know, uh, and then. Bands like, like Yes, they, you know, they had musicians that were very classically trained, like their keyboardist, uh, Rick Wakeman. He studied, I want to say, in Paris at a conservatory or something like that. Uh, and he was an accomplished, or he is an accomplished keyboardist. And, you know... Those, they had a lot of those influences, you know, classical uh, influences. And then, of course, there was Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Keith Emerson, 
you know, incredible keyboardist. He was classically trained. I don't, I don't remember where he was trained, but he was an incredible musician. Uh, and so that actually started in the 60s, you know. Uh, but I would want to say Days of the Future Past was one of the first albums, if, if not the first album, by a rock band where they incorporated a, a, an orchestra uh, in, into what they did. And, I mean, that has always been an incredible album. Uh, and that's where, you know... Um, their most famous song off that album is uh, "Nights in White Satin." You right. Know, uh, I have a which, friend. I have a friend who saw them the last time they came to. I think they played in Sugarland, and they played that whole album in its entirety. He wow. said he said he was just. It was like to him. It was like going back to you know when when that album was out because he actually bought it when it came out, and <laughs> it just came full circle. It's like wow, that's. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that is so crazy. I'm reading. I'm reading on here. Uh, it's apparently been cited as one of the first examples of progressive rock with fusion with its fusion of orchestral and rock elements. So you're right. You're definitely 100 percent on that. Yeah, yeah. That's that's always been just a hugely incredible album to me. You know, especially at that time. You know. That was very cutting edge, you know. Uh, not a lot of bands did it, but uh, I would say that probably the bands that did it, they 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 did a darn good job of it, you know. Uh, King Crimson, another another really good band. Yeah, yeah. They were also yeah. in that in that realm of uh, not not many not many were doing doing what they were doing either. Right. Yes. Right. Uh, ELP. Um, trying to think. Rush. You know, with their three-piece band, doing what they were doing. Yeah. Just phenomenal. I mean, you think of all the different eras that that they plowed through. Whether it was the progressive rock era, the synthesizer era, to even the grunge era, where they were they were kind of stripped down and kind of coming back to to their to their early roots of uh rock and roll from the 70s yeah i i bring up i bring up rush for for a reason for a specific reason <laughs> as you know um how how far back do you remember hearing hearing about neil peart uh i would say that i've heard of them probably in the early 80s maybe the early to early to mid 80s i saw them uh they opened for i i don't remember i think they may have opened for journey or i don't remember if they did or not uh i mean i remember I may be getting the concerts mixed up because I went to a bunch of concerts, but I do remember seeing them in concert uh, at some point in the 80s, maybe the mid-80s, like 85 or something like that. Uh, and maybe they didn't open for, for Journey. It was Golden Earring that opened for Journey. So I don't remember who opened for Rush, 
but I saw Rush at the what what, what was the summit, you know, where where the the Lakewood Church is now. But uh, that's where, you know, I saw a lot of bands. I saw, gosh, I saw Elton John there. I saw the Who there. I saw Santana there. I saw the Moody Blues there. I saw Stevie Ray Vaughan there. I saw Golden Earring, uh, Aerosmith, uh, uh, and who's the band Love Hurts? Uh, Nazareth. Uh, who, who is that? Nazareth. Yeah, Nazareth. Man. Saw Nazareth there. I saw Gino Vanelli there. Gino Vanelli was incredible. Just, he was awesome. Uh, I saw, I think I saw Roger Waters there. Uh, Jeez. Saw, and I saw, man, I saw a bunch of bands there. Uh, ZZ Top. Uh, gosh, I saw that, because that's where everybody would come. I mean, I, I also remember... Uh, I think I was maybe like 14 or so when I went to my first rock and roll concert. And I remember exactly who, who was playing. Uh, my brother Perfirio uh, bought tickets uh, to go see Joe Walsh. And Joe Walsh had just released the album, uh, The Smoker You Drink, The Player You Get, uh -huh. which is the album that Rocky Mountain Way is on. And I want to say that might have been 73, okay? Um, I, I, I don't remember for sure, but I think it was 73. But they were playing at the Sam Houston Coliseum, which is like where, I think it's where the Hobby Center is now. It's somewhere over there on the, you know, near near Jones Hall on, on the west side of downtown, kind Across of near the Across from the Hard Rock, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, more or less, right there in the, in, in that area. Right. Uh, you know, it's all changed so much that it's kind of hard to tell what was what. But but in the early days, uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, what was the name of that venue? Uh, the Sam Houston Coliseum was where a lot of the rock and or most of the rock and roll bands came to play. And the first concert that I went to was uh, was the Joe Walsh concert, and I remember in those days it was not unusual for them to have three bands playing, okay. And so the very first band that played was a band called uh, a fairly new band called Leonard Skinnerd. Uh, wow! And they had just released uh, uh, Second Helping, so you know they had. Sweet Home Alabama and uh, Freebird and all those songs like that. And they were a really great band. And that was, you know, back when the original band was there, you know, you know, before the plane crash, years, you know, several years before the plane crash. Uh, so it was the original band. And then the next band that played was the Marshall Tucker Band. And they were really, really good. And then, of course, Joe Walsh came on and played. And that was the very first concert that I went to. And I think it was in 73. And then after that, I saw a bunch of bands there. I saw, uh, I saw, uh, let's see, what's his name? Uh, Jethro Tull. I saw Santana there maybe several times. I saw, I saw 
Yes, there at least once, maybe twice there. I saw, uh, let's see, the, the early band that young uh, Peter Frampton was in. I think it's called uh, Humble Pie. Humble Pie. When, when Peter Frampton was just a young kid, pretty much. I saw Humble Pie there. Uh, who else did I see there? Uh, man, I saw a lot of bands there. Uh, that I can't, you know, can't even remember uh, some of them. But that was a, that was a really cool. I said that was a really cool place. You know, I was pretty young, uh, and so you know, it was just my beginning of going to concerts. And then, of course, everything kind of moved over to the to the to the, uh, to the summit. Uh, and there were other venues too. Uh, I saw uh, what's his name. Uh, there, there's a guitar player, uh, Cliffs of Dover. What's his name? Eric Johnson. Uh, Eric Johnson. Yes, I saw him at a club. I don't remember if it was called Carnaby's or it was called something else, but it was literally a house in the Heights. Okay, uh, and you walked into the living room, I believe, and there was like four or five little tables there. And he played there, and I mean, it was so long ago, it was before anybody really knew who Eric Johnson was, you know? No, uh, I actually met him saw... a few years ago. Yeah, at yeah, a, it was at years Cactus, ago. Cactus Music. And he, I was able to get my, my dad has a copy of that album, Avia Musicom, and I was able to get a sign for him, which is pretty cool. cool. Got a picture with him, too. He's a really, really cool That's guy, awesome. really, really great uh, guitarist. Oh yeah, uh, it's just it's just so. I've also gone into that rabbit hole of looking up stuff from the Sam Houston Coliseum and all the bands that used to play at the Summit. Uh, I recall a concert that my dad went to. I think he went with you to go see Phil Collins. Am I correct on that? Probably so, because prob I saw Phil Collins several times. Okay. Uh, I saw, in, in fact, I think I saw Phil Collins the, the first time that I saw him when he was split up from Genesis was at, uh, it might have been uh, Jones Hall. Uh, it might have been Jones Hall uh, or, or a place called the Music Hall. Wasn't it the Music Hall? I believe it was. Uh, it might have been the music hall. Yeah, it, it was probably the music hall. And in fact, I saw I saw uh, Peter Gabriel there too, uh, which was really really cool when he when he you know started touring. Uh, and and he was he was he was a Peter Gabriel is different you know uh, in terms of you know how he behaved on stage and things like that and one of the things that I remember was I was kind of in the middle towards the front and at one point in the show he walked onto the handles of the chairs in the middle section and he walked from from where the stage was all the way to the back and so he had to reach his arms out to hold everybody's hand as he went by so so he reached out and grabbed my hand and then and then kept walking towards the front. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was so cool, you know. 
That's 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 a really great album, the one he puts out in '86, with a uh, sledgehammer and big time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, a. If you ever get the chance, there's a YouTube video of him and his band doing. Uh, uh, let me see. It's called "In Your Eyes." It, it's it's in your eyes, and there's a uh-huh. version, a live version of it, that is really just incredible. I mean, it just it just totally rocks, you know. Uh, but of course, you know, you can find a lot of that stuff on YouTube, you know. And and I like to sometimes go, like you said, into the rabbit hole and and go look at different things like that, you know. I think that I think that's going to be the next uh, episode. We're just going to be talking about concerts because I, I I have. Uh, I, we haven't even scratched the surface on that. Before, before I wrap this up, I do want to mention, you know, we've been, t- and I think we're kind of scratching the surface on here too with drumming. I know in the eighties, uh, the electronic drums were kind of coming more into prominence. Um, and I've, I know I've been to your place several, uh, maybe what, once, twice, and actually have seen the, electronic drums that you work with uh, of course i bought a kit years ago and that's what i practice on how i mean i'm sure the technology has greatly changed over the years even with the drum machines too would you say it i'm sure at the time it was really really cutting edge and it was you know the thing to play do you think that kind of takes away from from the actual acoustic kit or is it more do you see it more as okay i can do i can incorporate a little bit of this stuff into what i do with the acoustic kit i would say yes the the second part you can incorporate it into what you do uh you know there's there's a certain there's a certain feel and there's a certain thing about just playing a regular set of drums but it doesn't mean that that you can't you can't incorporate the electronics because there are things that you might want to do that um, to kind of maybe expand your sound uh, or be able to do something slightly, slightly uh, more creative or how shall I say just just different than what you can get on a regular set of drums. Uh, you know, by using electronics. Uh, you know, probably an electronic kit is probably not a bad idea for somebody maybe that that is playing a gig in a small place and they need something that they can carry uh, that's very light and they can still play and things like that. But, you know, if you have a setup of what how you want to do it for your show, you know, and, and there's, there's no constraints on it, then probably, uh, you know, 99% of every drummer is going to want an acoustic kit and then he's going to want a little bit of electronics here and there uh, for something you know some more than others but uh, really I would say that the electronic kit is more of just a kind of like an icing on the cake kind of deal because there's there's something about an acoustic kit that that you know that you can't replicate with an electronic kit you know uh, and that people still love that, that feel of, of hitting that head and making and making it go boom, you know. Uh, it I, I think it'll probably always be there, 
but you know you're going to have the option of of, of uh, having that that electronic stuff available for different things. Like there's people that have their electronic stuff set up where it's playing maybe a rhythm of, of a shaker, and so you hit the you, you, you hit the drum and it starts a, sh a shaker pattern, you know, something like this, and, and then you jump in with the, the regular drum kit, and so you've got something kind of keeping time on top while you're playing your other stuff, and so it's you're getting a combination or a blend of, of different sounds, and so it, it can enhance, enhance your creativity. Uh, but I, I hesitate to say that it can be the only thing, you know, uh, because I, I would say that most drummers would say, no, it, it's not going to be the only thing, you know. Uh, in rare instances, it is, but mostly in rare instances. <laughs> right, right. I, I've seen, you know, I've seen several drummers incorporate that through through the years, whether it be uh, at a concert or even in the studio or even when they're doing rehearsals backstage, they'll have like a portable kit and they'll just be practicing on there. And and even nowadays you can find, uh, I know with the one I have, it's a Simmons kit. Uh, it already has a, a click and a tempo incorporated into it. So you can practice along to whatever demos that it comes with and even yeah. change like the different, I'm just amazed at the different styles that you can put on it. Even, you could even customize each each tom and each drum and each cymbal to oh, the yeah. way to the way that you like it. I have it set up to where it sounds like a like if I'm in a studio where the the snare is it's not too compressed, but it doesn't have a lot of reverb on it either. It's just you hit it and you hear it. But it I kind of liken it to where it's kind of like a studio kit. And sometimes I'll change change it back to you know I'll have some congas going and uh maybe i'll have like a like a 1970s john bonham sound going and just to try to try something different see what what that sounds like and up until recently i started jamming with my brother at guitar center at the little rehearsal spaces that they have and just, yeah. just off the cuff you know he's you know he does what he does on the guitar i can't i can't take that away from him uh but i do what i do on the drums <laughs> And that's yeah. very, very limited uh, drumming ability that I have. And it's one of my goals that I want is to actually learn how to properly play and actually get the coordination right with the with the feet and all sorts of things. It's just a, a goal that I have set for myself. Um, I think I'll, I think I'll I can get better. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You that can was just you will. That was just, you know, it's just for fun, just to try to see what I can do if if I'm able to follow along with what he's playing and not just, you know, just playing for the sake of playing. And right. It's uh for for those that don't know how to play or have never played, it's uh it's very tasking. <laughs> <laughs> it's very tasking. Yeah. You know, you think you think you have your cardio up uh up and running, but man, once you sit behind that kit uh, it, it, but it's just for me it's just something that I gravitated towards I've always been a fan of it since I think I was 10 years old and never having the the space for a kit uh, you know living here in an apartment and you can't have an acoustic kit because you know you'd be kicked out but yeah. 
Oh yeah. Finally been finally able to to afford uh, an electronic kit and you know a basic one too that I can fit in my little area and finally being able to book some time and to go rehearse it's just I'm like wow I can't believe I'm finally doing this <laughs> yeah yeah coming a long way but uh we we can we can leave it we can leave it here and pick up next time because uh, there's a, still a lot of topics I I really want to touch on you know double bass drumming um actually different the different techniques in drumming uh, that you can find to this day on on YouTube, thanks, yeah. Thanks mm. to the help of the internet, uh, even stuff uh, recording drums. I'm sure that's a whole different topic that we can touch on. Uh, I do want to leave with this though. Uh, any any advice you might have for any up and coming musicians, whether it be drummers, guitar players singers bass players piano players uh probably what i would say is you know kind of it kind of depends on where you intend to go with it but if you intend to 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 become a professional and, and to really uh play with more bands and things like that uh a couple of things that i would say is is learn different styles Try to learn to read music, uh, learn different kinds of styles, uh, and always realize that no matter what you do, and, and this goes outside of music as well, uh, we tend to find comfortable places that we can uh, slide into as far as like practicing things that we want to practice and, and uh, things like that. Uh, but it's, it's okay to get comfortable with something for a little while, but if you really want to get better, you have to go outside of your comfort zone uh, and say, well, that like let's say you see something that a drummer does uh, or a guitar player does, and you go, man, that, that looks impossible. I could never do that. That's when you go, okay, let me figure out how I could dissect that maybe one, one measure at a time and, and play that and when you when you do that and you start practicing then you find out that you opened up a whole new world as far as you're playing and and you have to keep doing that you know keep exploring you know challenge yourself you know that's that's what I would say and very crucial to play with a click slash metronome correct oh yeah especially for a drummer or a bass player because when you don't have those in a band then you are the timekeeper uh and you must lock in the tempo uh to keep everybody else uh in, in tempo uh, playing along with a metronome is extremely important uh because for a drummer um the, the typical thing that every new drummer, every beginning drummer, every inexperienced drummer does is when you get to the end of a phrase and there's a drum fill, every drummer speeds up. Okay, I did it. I probably still do it. Uh, 
everybody does that. But when you play along with a click track and you practice those drum fills with a click track, then your mind learns how to do it without speeding up. Okay? So that would be a very important thing to always not forget. So it pretty much keeps you in control rather than just kind of going off and just, you know, just doing whatever and getting right. out of time and then it doesn't, it, then it, it doesn't sound right. It keeps from speeding the tempo up. Right. Because that's, that's the, that's the number one thing that always happens is you speed up the tempo and then everybody has to go faster. And so you want your time to be like a clock. Uh, you literally want to want your tempo to be like a clock. I mean, yeah, there's going to be a couple of times where it might swing a little bit, but but you essentially want it to remain the same. If you start the song out at 100 beats per minute, then you want to finish the song at 100 beats per minute. But if you speed up during the, the drum fills and, and the ends of the phrases and stuff like that, then or, or when there's a loud part, then you might end up at 120 beats per minute, and uh, you don't want to do that, you know? Right. Victor, this has been a lot of fun, a lot more fun than I anticipated. I know this is a long time coming, and there's obviously, you know, wealth of information and a lot of... Uh, a lot of cool experiences from what I see. <laughs> very, very, very cool. And like I said, we've only scratched the surface on, on a lot of topics. And I think the next one will probably primarily be focused on drumming because, I mean, I'm sure you can go off on, on a lot of stuff on, yeah. on that topic. Yeah. But for now, you know, just kind of kind of get in the groove of it, see where we go with it. And, you know, it's I, I feel that it's uh, I think people will enjoy this. Good, good, awesome. So, thanks awesome. again for coming. Anything you wanna you wanna plug before uh, before we wrap it up? Um, no, not really. I mean, I hope that I hope that who, who, the, your listeners get something out of this that they can use. Uh, that you know that that uh, they can you know have the same kinds of experiences and maybe be able to share that with somebody else at some point in time. You know. Absolutely. I always say that life's too short to be a, you know, be petty about things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it really is, you know, especially in a time like now where we're slowly reopening things. It's it's uh, life's too short. Yeah. yeah. It, can, oh, it yeah. can go away like that quick. I mean, you see us still stuck. Well, some of us are still stuck at home, but still going out to places. But you see, like, musicians are forced to you know, go on Instagram or on Zoom and start doing these virtual performances, which is pretty cool to me. You know, they're still keeping up with what they're doing. They're practicing a lot more, learning different styles. It's uh, the possibilities are they're endless. Yeah. So thank, thanks again, guys, for tuning into the show. You can rate, review, subscribe to the show for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Um, I'm kind of hoping... The money starts rolling in, but I don't do it for the money. <laughs> it's all, you know, it's all just for the love of this. You know, I love doing this. So thanks again, guys, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks again, Victor, for coming on. You're welcome. You're welcome. Have a good one, man. Until the next time, all right? Take care.